pin particles in the hands of AIM? We're, we're talking unparalleled molecular destruction. Let's go. Relax, Ant-Man. We've got this. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Film Around Podcast. We'll be chatting with the lads from Mong in a little bit. Uh, but for right now, I'm Richard Drum. And, and I'm Jonathan are... Victory. I messed that up. <laughs> uh, so I won't interrupt you again. Straight, at, <laughs> straight into news. The Film Board has decided to change their name to Screen Ireland. Now, this is a non-news story if ever I saw one. However, their reasoning behind the name change somewhat intrigued me. Apparently, they changed their name because modern, and I say this with in kind of air quotes because it was inverted, it was in inverted commas in the article, modern film makers rarely work in the medium of physical film anymore, therefore calling it the Irish Film Board makes no logical sense. What? It's, <clears throat> that was part of the press release, um, so far it's just been the press release that we have to base this decision on. <laughs> I don't think it was just that, that the actual No, of course not, but I mean, the fact that anyway. every single article I read led with that quote, that that was the main reason why the name change has completely baffled me. See, the name Irish Film Board sounds like a state body with, like, a public remit. Screen mm. Ireland could just as easily be the name of a private company. On the other hand, Screen Ireland sounds does like mean that if... Or indeed a magazine. Well, I mean, basically, we've already taken the name Film Ireland, so they couldn't call themselves Film Ireland. Screen Ireland, on the other hand, opens them up to new possibilities. That the the other sense I got from the announcement was that they they're recognizing how much development there could be in the area of TV, in uh, web series, and animation, in like maybe even video games. Any sort of audio visual media could have huge room for developments and investments. And I think the idea behind renaming Screen Ireland is part of the rebranding that it could potentially not just be supporting Irish film, but it could be providing funding for TV shows as well. You may see this having some blowback for feature development, or it could work out fine and it could be developing features along with all this other creative content. You know, so I mean, I mean if, if that's the idea behind it, it could lead... It, and, and this is all just potential stuff. It'll have to. It'll depend on like legislation that's being passed through the doll uh, at some point in autumn. But you know what this could mean is they could have a role of more oversight and more sort of long-term planning of the infrastructure of the audiovisual sector as a whole. So like film and television stuff could be coordinated better in terms of producing quality content, in terms of green filmmaking, which is the area I'm researching and we we spoke about in the last podcast. You know, so um, we could wait and see, I suppose. I mean, I mean, it might be a good uh, development, but I suppose I, I, you found it quite quaint, the the the, or like some of the reasoning for the name change. Just that specific reason. I don't really think they need a reason to change the name. Like you can change your name, whatever, as long as you don't find out two months from now. From now, they spent like whatever ten million dollar or dollars euro <laughs> like on researchers and. Uh, think tank groups to rename the thing, and they'll probably have a new logo that will cost them another seven billion. But I mean, it's just seven billion for a logo. <laughs> Didn't the Irish water logo cost something like that? Graphic design company has some serious <laughs> accounting issues. But, uh, no, it's just I don't see why they felt the need to put out a reason for the name change, and I guess they just they felt they had to, and then they scrambled for a reason and gave this incredibly strange, like. Reasonably accurate, I guess. Yes, it's true. Not people, not many people do use the physical medium of film anymore. But it was such a bizarre, especially in the week or the fortnight of the whole Wi-Fi issue, that when when a senator pronounced Wi-Fi Wi-Fi in the Senate and and, claimed uh, it was the French way of doing it, yeah. Uh, did you hear about on a, on a related note? There, there is uh, trouble brewing in the UK about uh, the BBC and possible cuts to it. And no, go on. I think. I mean. For example, if you compare RTE to BBC, BBC tend to have a lot more diversity in terms of what kind of TV shows they can finance and commission and produce. And but there's there's some there's some trouble at the moment with uh, the Tories planning to make some kind of cuts or changes to the BBC. And Boris Johnson was interviewed, and one of the things he said was, um, "How come BBC never produced like a Breaking Bad or a show like Breaking Bad?" And um, Charlie Brooker had a very funny tweet saying, "It's because Walter White would have gotten free healthcare on the NHS if it had been made by the BBC." Um, mm. A joke which I feel has been made a million times in the last ten years, but I do like Charlie Brooker. Though. So do and I, it was a pro- it was context appropriate, but basically, I mean, that's the thing I would always see looking over at BBC. They they produce a lot of movies and a lot of TV, quite diverse. But that's very recent. Like, like they were crap for a lot of years. I mean, their main output, you know, for maybe the sixties through nineties, is probably churning out old episodes of Doctor Who, which 
quality-wise are shoestring budget and terrible. Yes, Minister of Faulty Towers, you know, there would have been sitcoms. And, of course, but in these those were all years, very were, insular. These were all, like, just for Britain. I mean, it's only really in the last 10 years, any kind of, like, I know BBC America is a big thing now. It's It's... Very recent. Also, in the last 10 years, they have like two extra channels and yeah. there's this whole <clears throat> digital platform now to distribute stuff as well. So I, I guess the production context is shifting. That's what the Irish Film Board has recognised. So maybe they're going more in that direction. Yeah, hopefully. We can yeah. see if it's um, it can realise its potential, I guess. Well, you, I believe, had some news to do with Galway, or rather a quick rundown of the films therein. Uh, and just in terms of the movies that got screened there, there seems to be pretty good output now coming from Irish film, if the Galway Film Flaw has anything to go by. There was a really diverse range of movies that, um, you know, they, they sound really interesting. You had a chance to see Your Ugly 2, and you're going to talk we'll about that later. We'll review that later, yes. We There was also Monge, the premiere of the uh-huh. uh, film from film-based students on the film-based master's degree. Um, I'm a proud graduate of that degree, and uh, students produced a feature film called Mond, which also premiered at the Galway Film Flower. We're going to be talking to the directors of that movie later. And for those who, unlike me, don't live in 90s nostalgia, Mond is neither a racial slur nor any kind of offensive terminology, so it's okay to say it out loud. It'll be explained later on. Um, also worth plugging the other film, film-based students are making called Fading Away, which will be coming to you at some point later in the year. Um... But there were some really interesting sounding movies from the Galway Film uh, Festival that I'd, I'd be keen to see later in the year now. They sound quite interesting. Um, a movie called Strangerland was an Irish co-production with Australia that starred Nicole Kidman and Hugo Weaving. And it was um, co-written by the Irish screenwriter Michael Kinarns, uh, who I had a screenwriting lecturer two years ago in Filmbase, actually. Um, but, you know, it's 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 just great seeing, like, a successful premiere like that at Galway. People really liked it, really responded well to it. Uh, similarly, there was a movie that I, I think you would find interesting, Richard, because... Oh, um, is it depressing and full of dark, dark things? Th- th- this premise tickled me when I heard it. It was for a movie called Traders. Okay. Which, um, <clears throat> y- you know, with this premise, it, it could go either way. It, but if they get the tone right, this this is a great premise for a black comedy. But Traders is a movie set in the aftermath of the Irish financial crisis... Um, and people are struggling because they're in so much debt or they're in financial trouble. And at the same time, there's a, sp- a rise in suicide rates and, you know, the, there's there's some kind of connection between the two. Traders envisions a world where what people started doing in the aftermath of this financial crisis in Ireland was that they would make sort of pacts with each other that they would... Two people would go and convert all of their assets and property into cash. Mm-hmm. They would then have a fight to the death in an isolated location, <laughs> and whoever won the fight to the death would get to keep the other person's cash. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what I mean? It could be a tonal mess, but... The, 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 well, sure, the, there must be reviews of it out by now. The word know. from the premiere is that it was very well received, that the Black okay, comic tone that, worked. Yeah. Um, there are all sorts of Irish movies that have really interesting premises, uh... From this festival, another one was called On Klondike, which is an Irish language western about uh, the Connolly brothers traveling across uh, Canada and North America. And westerns might be making a bit of a comeback. We saw a slow west earlier in the year, which uh, we, we may talk about later in the review section. Uh, this to have an Irish language sort of setting an Irish angle in the western story. Mm. That sounds like a good angle to take, and certainly in, with Slow West, it was all about Scottish and Irish people, and I suppose that's that's an aspect of uh, Western movies we don't see too often. It's often about American characters, but the reality would have mm, been the people true. going West would have been immigrants from elsewhere who are uh, looking for a new life, so that, that that just sounds like an interesting project. Another project in a different language was called Moscow Never Sleeps, which is by an Irish director named Johnny O'Reilly, but... It's a Russian language movie set in Moscow, and it's a. I I was lucky enough to see a, a, a test screening of it last year when it was still being edited. So, um, I'd I'd quite like to see how that ended up turning out, though, because uh, from what I saw of it, it was very good. It was a sort of Magnolia style okay. story where multiple storylines were interacting over the course of a night in Moscow. There was also the winner of the documentary prize at the Galway Film Flag was Older Than Ireland, and this was a documentary in which. There were uh, people who were older than 100 years old being interviewed. So these were basically people who were older than the foundation of the country we're living in. I suppose in a kind of one million Dubliners kind of way, it could be interesting. I, I think a it closer, sounds very televisual. The closer comparison I've heard is his and hers. Another yeah, documentary yeah, from a few yeah. years ago. 
And um, there must be some good insight from the interviewees about how they view life. And apparently there was a good range of sort of how funny they were or how insightful they were. Some of the people, some of the subjects were at Galway for the premiere. Yeah, I'd worry that they'd end up in the editing, sanitising it an awful lot to make it a very nice, lovey-dovey, pleasant to listen to Sunday matinee screening kind of movie rather than a very insightful, quite biting commentary on 100 Years of Ireland, you know? I I, I would... I guess I would, I would have to see the movie to oh, no, you confirm that, right. you know, because, I mean, th- 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 there was all sorts of horrible things from the last century of Irish history, oh, so maybe they oh, lived yes. through it and uh, would have something to say. I get your point, though. It sounds like something that might work sort of for a television audience. Yeah, I could just, I could money. see the film descending. And I know this is horrible that we're both prejudging this thing without having seen it, but I could just, I could totally see a movie like that in this country turning into a kind of, you know, Mary from down the shops and... When she served Barack Obama that ice cream that one time or something like that, you know, instead of like something to do with, say, a commentary on the Magdalene Laundries or any that kind of stuff. You see, when I saw his... people and... don't want to go to be challenged in the cinema. But so. like when I watched his and hers, for example, you know, you, the, the, there might be some moments where you're worried it's going to lapse into that. But yeah. the fact that it's it's interviewing all these women uh, who are older and older... And it, it it gets to like a last shot spoiler alert of uh, like an, an old woman in a nursing home who's presumably close to death. I mean, there there you can get moments like that that get an emotional point across. Yeah, that can be quite poignant. And uh, so yeah, I mean, One Million Dubliners was was also a very good documentary from last year that had a good picture okay. of it. But um, you know, but I suppose some some bits of it might have been a bit touristy or twee. But on the whole, I think you know, kind of th- th- these kind of movies, th- th- it's another way of storytelling, like documentaries, and uh, there have been some good documentaries in, coming from Ireland That's fair enough. Yeah, last few years. Finally, just one film that's really worth mentioning is My Name is Emily, which um, you, you may be familiar with now because the crowdfunding campaign for it was very well publicised. The director, Simon Fitzmaurice, was diagnosed a few, few years ago with motion neuron disease and he's ended up being almost completely paralyzed and what the he had a project he wanted to make about a young girl played by Ivana Lynch who was Luna Lovegood in the Harry Potter movies and um she went to school I went to school with her cousin actually which is a, a useless, important a useless bit of information other than to say that how how interconnected Irish society is yeah well I know three people that are best friends with her so I mean whatever it doesn't make a difference we had so, me that. this was a story about um a girl on her 16th birthday going on a road trip to find her father um who's been estranged from her and uh, so the story itself had nothing to do with motion neuron disease but there was a there was a very well supported crowdfunding campaign to get Simon Fitzmaurice the sort of medical and logistical support he'd need to make the movie so that, that like um a voice synthesizer that could read his eye movements so that he's able to communicate with his mm, cast yeah the fact that, that you know to push through those kind of obstacles and constraints to still come out with this movie which um Seems to have been very received from the Galway Film Festival. So it's just a really nice ending to that story that the that my name is Emily ended up getting finished and it's it's been shown at Galway now. Yeah. So I, I I just want to say fair play to Simon Fitzmaurice and everyone <laughs> who was involved in that. Indeed, uh, one final bit of amusing slash slightly macabre news is that I think it was either yesterday or the day before yesterday recently, Frederick Wilhelm Murnau, uh, famed director of Nosferatu. Had his skull stolen from his metal coffin in Berlin. Wax was found at the scene. The police suspect Satanists. I mean, we could just leave it there and move on, or should we discuss this? I think that's amazing. Uh, For the sake of his family's peace of mind, I hope they find the skull and get it back. But if they don't, fair play Satanists. That was weird. Yeah, it is a bit kind of. I mean, it, it is quite grim when you think about it. I just think because he's he was a pioneer of such gothic cinema. That it just seems funny. This you see, is do you think? Do you think though that it was just because of the iconography of Nosferatu, or do you think that they saw Interview with a Vampire, assumed that was a documentary rather than or Shadow of a Vampire? Shadow of a Vampire, rather. sorry, yeah, uh, and assumed that he actually did know a vampire, and therefore his skull might have magic powers. Um, you see, I reckon probably not because. Of- Actually, if it was Satanist, though, maybe. You, you see, the thing is, I, I well, I think- okay, the police said Satanist, or like you're you're, you're asking, would this be? Like, would it be less funny if he wasn't involved with that kind of movie? And I think so, because this has happened to Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin's grave has been robbed on a number of occasions for people trying to get a ransom for the body back. So this seems to happen to some <laughs> filmmakers. Yeah, this happens to some filmmakers sometimes. And I suppose this one, it was just... I suppose the fact that 
Did they say wax was found at the scene? Yeah. So okay, I so, into a candle-burning ritual circle. Nonsense. Okay, so it might have been Satanists who... Uh, General occult people, whatever. Stole the skull. It's it's just so <laughs> macabre. It's it's kind of like... And, and, and of course, the family must be very distressed right oh, yeah, now. So absolutely. it's kind of... I, I, I hate myself for finding this funny, because it's so <laughs> it's such a horrible thing to happen. But um, I, I just... Um, yeah, this, this was just a very bizarre piece of news from this week. I still find it weird, though. Of all the details in that story, the metal coffin baffles me to the point that did they did they think this might happen did they entomb him in a metal coffin for a reason anyway uh so up next we'll have a quick chat with the lads from mond about you know life and making a film and going to galway and happy times working as a team and we're here joined by the directors of Mond, a film created for the as part of the film based master's course uh, i'm joined by the two directors uh, david brendeville Rory Mullen. Brian Quinn. So, uh, you want to talk a bit about, I don't know, anything, everything. Casting, Galway, crowdfunding, the horrors, the good times, the dizzying highs, the low lows. We just screened last Thursday, and um, I guess this is like post-mortem into um, what went down. So how did you guys find it, I guess? The screening went well. I think people seemed to to enjoy the film. Uh, they seemed to get its sense of humour. Um, people... I think enjoyed the performances in it, and generally the feedback is very good. So I think, I think, the, be- I think the the best thing is performances. I feel I feel like when you're when you make a film, like I just want to do justice to the actors and the effort the effort they put into it. So I was happy. I was proud that they were happy. Definitely, yeah. you know. I think it'll be worth um, going back a bit further because uh, you were on the same master's degree I did, where <clears throat> students get to make a feature film, and you got the feature sort of planned and shot and finished on time for a Galway Film Festival in. Like what, like five or six months or well, very tight time frame? Well, I can't remember exactly the uh, pre-production, but filming was 18 days with six weeks post. So I think what went on screen last Thursday in Galway was uh, quite an achievement for the um, for the pressure, 18 days. And uh, But as the last said, the actors were, were superb, you know, great, and they, uh, they stuck with us. We have Graham Early as Dave. John Connors as Bernard and Rex Ryan as Ray. For anyone who isn't familiar with the story, like like what is the premise? It sort of it, it focuses around the three characters uh, they play. Doesn't yeah, well, it, well, it's a slice of life movie. It's just a weekend of these three characters and uh, how they, Dave and Ray, who are old school friends, um, meet Bernard at a party, and Dave decides to use him as a test pilot for his new ease after the weekend, <laughs> and uh, just they all start to learn something about themselves I suppose yeah I guess it's a, it's a drug film you know it's a, it's set over the course of a weekend and it's about how the Bernard bonds with Dave and Ray people who in normal circumstances he probably would never have never socialised with and uh, they bond and learn some lessons over lots of drugs uh, sounds good so, uh, I think it's a buddy movie in a way it's a buddy movie yeah, definitely. with drugs with drugs, yeah, so naturally. So that would be where the titular being monged comes from? What is the verb usage there? Is it, does one get monged? Is it to be monged? It's a slightly antiquated term, I guess, but uh, I think it's like early 2000s, late 90s, debauched kind of, you know, plastered kind of term, which, you know, it works for this film. Actually, I think that was one tricky part, I think, in the sense that... Updating? The, yeah, thing. because uh, the play was... It's from the play by Gary Douglas. Okay, yeah. Monged yeah. Uh, ten years ago, which was sort of in the height of the E mm-hmm. craze. Mm-hmm. And that sort of diminished a little bit now. So, I, just, I was just curious about whether... Um, like, Because drug movie was the first description that came to your mind. Like, were there any... Were there any conscious influences on this movie in terms of other movies that have been around drugs? It sounds like you're sort of taking a different angle uh, with this kind of movie, or it sounds like original enough in terms of the approach to it. Like, or is, is that what you're going for? Um, I suppose you know it's in terms of other drug films that we compare it to. I mean, maybe there'd be an element of something like The Wolf of Wall Street in it, and just how just the level of debauchery that happens in the film. <laughs> but it does have that sort of buddy movie element, and. Um, what films do we look at beforehand? I think we were thinking of thinking of Boogie Nights a lot, yeah. but then again, that like it was just one of those dreams you have where it's like, <laughs> let's try and do this, but you know, never it would never happen. Would, would Train Spotting be similar? Yeah, I think we talked about Train Spotting a bit. And... Yeah, but I think 
one thing about Mong in one sense, or the the way we saw it and the way I think we interpreted it was that, like, these are three guys in their twenties. Uh, drugs and alcohol are part of you know that scene in your twenties, yeah. regardless of what era. And um, you know, they, that, I think it's more of a backdrop to what's going on. Okay. I mean, we don't make any calls on whether it's right or wrong. Well, you know, you see the the good side of drugs and you see yeah. the bad side. Um, but I think it's it's just as I said, slice of life, and these things happen. Yeah, it's non-judgmental. There's no yeah. moralising about drug use in it. You know, it's it's just life. It's just something the characters do. You know. So was your approach to directing it then sort of realism or kind of over the top? You know crazy drug-infused haze sort of I think there's elements of it's it's realistic to a certain extent yeah. but it's also a comedy so it's there's yeah. certainly a bit of exaggeration in some things but yeah talk about a bit about I suppose how directing one film with three people worked out was it hell you're all still friends this, this is all one massive sham three in one room it was difficult <laughs> I, we'll I think it's like it's like a system that you know it shouldn't be that way of course but um mm. I think the way the master's course is set up, um, kind of, ha- it kind of has to, and I think in, in that way, it kind of, um, extinguishes egos in a way. When you have three, you kind of, you're in a way, you're a surrogate for like the film, because it's not your baby. So you're just kind of like, it's like an old studio director just trying to like hit the marks each time. Mm-hmm. So having three, you kind of, having one, I think it's too much pressure. Having two, I think those two people could kind of go down a rabbit hole, you know, together. And get lost in their own madness. But having three have like a good kind of, it's like a good court almost. You can like veto one person or like, but I think yeah. in a way it's just like a compromise, three-way compromise. So I think you all kind of, the big difficulty was trying to, I guess, from the very start, that task was having to bash our brains together so much that we're just one coherent brain. I think we got a pretty juicy brain on our hands. <laughs> <laughs> but also I think there's an age difference as well. So we, no, I'm a lot older than you two guys, so we sort of saw things in a good way, yeah. differently. Uh, and also the advantage of having three is if um, things go wrong, we can blame one can blame the other two. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's all his fault. Who was the designated scapegoat in that case? Oh, probably me. Okay. <laughs> Being the oldest, I can take it. I Typical it. ageism. Yeah. Um, so yeah, David, you're talking to me about casting John Connors against type. So, what do you mean by that? Well, it's just, you know, uh, in the film, John plays Bernard, who's a socially awkward yeah. um, insurance worker who ends up at this party by mistake. And uh, it's a very different role for John, you know. Uh, people probably know mainly for Love, Hate, King of the Travellers, mm. Stalker, you know, in which he plays kind of tougher characters, I suppose. Um, but John really embraced it. Uh, you know, I think he, he really wanted the challenge and... He did an amazing job, you know. I think mm-hmm. that uh, he's he's brilliant in the film, um, as are all the actors. I think, yeah, like like David said before, Bernard was seen as this kind of young, fresh-faced, kind of like innocent little baby boy. But um, when we first heard, I remember when I first heard John Connors was being talked about it, I didn't know who he was at all. So I just looked it up on Google and I was like, okay, okay, interesting, yeah, interesting. Yeah. That's, uh... But then uh, we met him and... Um, just so intelligent and a person that you could just spend ages to talking to about films yeah. and just like yeah just very and like a person you just you want to give him like you just want to see what he does with it because you just don't know you know and I was so interested to see I think we all were just kind of like oh, I wonder like how what ways you're going to play it or but I think everybody was kind of like excited he's yeah. a very exciting person to work with a very exciting actor you know yeah. and also I think one big thing it was that it was less than a week before our first day of principal and we still oh didn't have our yeah. murder. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, that sounds uh, fun. You know, I got a phone call. and But John saw Bernard, the character, and he wanted to play it. Mm. You know, we didn't have it because it was something that he really wanted to do, which is totally against time. Cool, good. And when what, I remember when I was told, and I sort of thought about it, oh, John Connors, what page? And I remember that specific scene in the 40-foot container, you know, which still... It's embedded or in my mind, uh, which is one of the most amazing pieces of Irish TV. But his ability as an actor, I just thought this could be very interesting. This is a totally different burner than we we're looking at. But I think he really made it his own, and mm. I think he just brought an element of that the baby like characteristics yeah. that his facial expressions, his demeanor, his one off off the cuff comments. 
I mean, are just, I think, just brilliant. And actually, when we saw, when I saw some of the stuff on the big screen in mm-hmm. Galway, I mean, the three of us had seen, you know, in the post-production, the editing, mm. so much of every single image. But when we saw someone on the big screen, some of his little movements and whatever are just priceless. Yeah. It changes so much on the big screen, definitely. And just like, we got so many laughs as well, like, like on the premiere. Like, it was great just to see, like, that side of John where it's like he can be vulnerable and then also just get so many laughs, yeah. in, you know. I mean, I was I was wondering, like, did did they do much ad libbing? Because that that was the case last year on the or the previous <laughs> year on the film based films where um, they did a um, they, they they were really lucky with the cast that they could ad lib stuff as well. So did you say John did a bit of that? The answer oh, is yeah. yes, Absolutely, yeah. yes, they we did. We encourage that though. I think that we we wanted the, the thing about Mong, like the script, you you just you can't like just read it because it's 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 supposed to be played with you know you can't expect actors to read those words and not kind of like shape them their own way i think in a script a lot of ways like in any script you have to give it to the actor and f- to filter through their creativity to see what happens and i think you, you, they kind of got the feel and the gist of each scene and they just kind of played with it and that's all we wanted was to kind of you know give the actors the confidence to you know just to reach out there and go beyond what's expected of them to like play around I think like it just gets the whole feel of the film, so well, it's great. I think, yeah, uh, I think we have to sort of a big thank you to our editor Aidan Quigley, who improv is great and the guys mm-hmm. threw, threw us some brilliant stuff, but can be a nightmare in the edit, you know. And Aidan was superb. Thanks, Aidan. And thank you, Aidan. <laughs> and uh, you know, I think he just made he he, he molded it, you know, where he had to cut and where he would allow the freedom for the actors. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, it all turned out nice. Well, by all accounts, Galway went down very well, and the acting in particular got a lot of mention, so how was Galway? Terrifying? Exciting? It's pretty exciting, you know. Mm. It, was, uh, it was interesting, to, having seen the film so many times, yeah, yeah. Uh, to see it with a crowd of people who had never seen it. I think, I mean, by the stage we went to Galway, I kind of felt like I had absolutely no idea how people are going to react to this <laughs> film. You know? I really didn't, you know. I'd seen it so many times. But it seemed to go down well, so... so great. To, like, first time I w- I've been there um, or had a film in a festival. And so, yeah, it was just great to be in that. And you feel kind of, when you're there, you're kind of, you're like, it feels great. And you're so grateful for being there. But you also feel kind of like, you know, I feel like an imposter sometimes. Because like, oh, I, I should have to hustle way more to be here. I should have to, like, do so much other... I should have to, like, kill people to be in this position, you know. So I kind of, as I'm grateful, I'm also aware that, like, okay, this is, like... This is so awesome, but you know, it's yeah, it's just great to be there. I mean, that, like I, I heard you did a fair amount of hustling, though, in terms of crowdfunding. Oh. I mean, you have to get money, you have to get money together to shoot a feature like this. So, um, and it's it's becoming a more commonplace thing for filmmakers to do. So, I suppose, like, did you have any advice from your experience on crowdfunding for these movies, or how, how you'd go about approaching great, that? Great transition, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's good, very good, smooth. Um, Don't draw attention to it, Jesus. <laughs> You ruined the magic. I think, like, the Indiegogo, we use Indiegogo, and when, when did we start that? Like, January? Or I think it was. But it was for both films. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so let's get into this. Um, so, so, so this was the other film, Fading Away, that some based students made, which will be uh, completed later in the year. But, yeah. Um, it was, it was, so you had to split it between the two movies? Yeah, the Indiegogo campaign was a campaign for both films, uh, and then it was split between the two. Um, so. And yes, it was rinsing all your friends and family <laughs> yeah, yeah. like as much as you can pub quizzes just just any excuse just to take money from friends yeah. Net, nephew's communion money there you go got that <laughs> uh, yeah I have no family anymore I have no friends they're all I was, I've robbed so much um, but yeah just loads like we had an Oscar night I think last year I think Poise, I think you guys did an Oscar night as well yeah um, that was cool. That was great. So, so there are like fun themed events you can hold as well. Um, like aside from figuratively robbing people, and like I suppose what I'm getting at is you premiered at Galway, and it it sounds like just as like with every previous year on the film based course, like uh, you guys really worked really hard in it, and you did hustle to you know get there. Totally, I think. So. But I think in like in retrospect, nostalgia, you kind of it, it's like I don't know. I never I never gave birth to a baby before, but it's like that like. When after you give birth, they say that like, oh, you want to do it again? Like you like when you're doing it, you're like, oh, this is the worst thing ever. This is so terrible. I'm so stressed. But afterwards, you're like, oh yeah, a baby. That's nice. I want to do that again. I think in retrospect, I feel like it's been kind of sub like all that kind of like hostility and stuff has been kind of subdued by nostalgia. 
So I think like, yeah, if you asked me this like a month ago, I think we would have been crying so much to even answer you coherently. But um, yeah. 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 No, I think uh, as Brian was saying, like when you're in the midst of it and uh, when you're on a shoot, like it's our first feature for everybody involved, at 18 days to shoot a feature film, it's crazy. You know, it, it is. Yeah, not it a lot is, of time at all. It's bonkers. <laughs> it's nuts. And when, you, when you're relying on people's generosity for locations, for costume, for everything, you know, it's, it's pressure. And uh, yeah, w there was a lot of pressure. When so. going to go away, like, I felt physically sick before the, the film, <laughs> uh, not knowing what people think. And, after, and, and afterwards as well. You know? no, but I tell you, when it, was, when it was screened and it was over and I walked out, it was like a huge sense of relief also that it's done. It's yeah. up there on the big screen. We've done it. We've made a movie. If people like it, great. But the actual fact of making that movie, mm. you know, wasn't achieved in itself. Do you know what Stanley Kubrick said? He said a lot of things. Well, in terms of this, of how tough it can be to make a film, he compared it to trying to write War and Peace in a bumper car in an amusement park. But once you get the movie finished, there's nothing in life that quite equals the feeling. Yeah. I guess in a way, we're Stanley Kubrick. I guess you said yeah. it, Jonathan. I guess yeah, you said sorry. it. No, you said it. <laughs> We had over like uh, two dozen locations for the film as well. So, so it was, it was crazy. Like, it was like I feel like yeah, I feel like I'm not doing justice to how crazy it was. You know, it was yeah. so intense. We had like, we had like a night shoot where we started at eight o'clock in the evening and we finished about six in the morning. Was oh, it? Oh, um, All around Temple Bar, all around town. That was. Trying to shoot in Temple Bar at two in the morning <laughs> was, on a Saturday. On a Saturday. Night. Yeah. I shot in Temple Bar in an afternoon, and I hate that. But that <laughs> night, that must have been. Well, that actual oh. that actual night was quite interesting because we were shooting it all through the night. So you saw the different stages of the people <laughs> from all being dressed up and nice and having fun and then sort of getting really drunk and then getting sort of falling over and then getting safe. And then, and then the, the, the sun comes the out. Sun coming up and you've got a you see the seagulls and picking on the vomit on the ground and bits yeah. of kebab <laughs> sprawled upon the pavement. Yeah, as the sun's coming so, up. <laughs> not a good B-roll then, I imagine, yeah. in that case. Port Vulture would have been proud. <laughs> That was tough, definitely. Though that was like that was it was like a war, you know. It was, but um, you still like you just you learn so much, you know, from being on set. You learn way more anywhere else. I think we we got a lot of help as well from uh, the first AD we had, Mel Cannon. Uh, like if we had, didn't have him, for example, I don't know what would have happened. Yeah. You know, thank you, so, thank you, Mel. Thanks, Mel. <laughs> Mel watched our back. I mean, he came, he was a previous year. Um, student and uh, yeah, no, how he stuck with us, I no idea. But yeah, thanks, Mel. Thank you, Mel. <laughs> so, uh, what's next after Galway? Any more festivals lined up, or y'all's gonna sleep for a year? Um, hopefully, as many festivals as we can get it into. Yeah. I mean, um, it was only last Thursday, wasn't it? It seems it was, yeah, it was last Thursday. Yeah, yeah, it actually seems quite a while ago already because uh, so we're still sort of digesting it all and I think the powers to be in film base are at the moment just checking out the festival circuit and seeing what yeah. what's around what's I mean, around yes. oh, well, best of luck with it and thanks for coming in yeah, okay. so thank you for asking us to come in yeah it was great much. being here and that was our chat with the lads from Monged uh, up next reviews so we've got a lot to get through but I think we can probably skip some of these quite fast so I'm going to quickly say Terminator Genesis the fifth movie in the Terminator franchise, if I'm counting correctly, the fourth different timeline they now have. Uh, it's dumb. It's really dumb. It's extraordinarily dumb. I thoroughly enjoyed it and would watch it again. <laughs> wow. I mean, the time travel, it kind of has a Chris Nolan problem of it all makes sense if you don't think about it. But as soon as you scrutinize the logic on any single part of it, the whole thing falls like a house of cards. And the time travel makes zero sense. But it... It just holds together on a level of insanity that just about works, and I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Would you say it's more akin to sort of like a Resident Evil? Or oh, absolutely. Kind of, like, the thing it reminded me like... most of was Resident Evil, and for those that don't know, I will unashamedly love and champion those films. The sixth one starts production this week. I'm very excited. <laughs> Because just the trailer for Genesis, it just looks like Hollywood were just throwing absolutely everything at it. And it was just the sort of laziest form of sequel writing where it's, it's the same quotes as before, but in a oh, different yeah. context. Or it's like, oh, it's that same scene from before, but slightly different. And it's it's just seemed like a really annoying, frustrating movie to watch. And I just, I just, I, I didn't want to see it on principle that I don't <laughs> want them to make more of these where it's like, Terminator refuturize with like Ar Arnold Schwarzenegger in a wheelchair still being a Terminator <laughs> and some other Game of Thrones actress is playing Sarah Connor yes. and it's just kind of and they're 
they're traveling back in time before Terminator Genesis. Well, like I said, you, yeah, Macy Genesis Williams should play Sarah Connor in a future movie where she's younger again, and they send a Terminator further back again to fight. But yeah, no, I think you're right in that it's um, it's it's kind of coasting on a level of nostalgia which I don't think makes sense because it's going for like a PG thirteen audience, but these kids won't have seen probably. Terminator 1 or 2, which are like hard 18s, and it's just, I don't understand, I, I know I get it, it's people our age or a bit older going for these things, but that leads us into a Jurassic World, which took all of the money yeah, uh, no, we- in the world, I think, and I don't quite get it, because aside from people like yourself, Jonathan, who have big nostalgic card-ons for the original two movies, first movie, anyway. That was my Jeff Goldblum laugh. It made no sense to anyone, please stop. Anyway. But, because like, I, I have no nostalgia for Jurassic Park as a franchise. I've seen the first one as a child, thought it was fun then. Watched it recently, thought it's mm. still okay. Me and you watched Lost World, which is my first time seeing and it I, a few months ago. I didn't much care for it. I was I mean, see, that was my first time watching it in years, and I thought it was ridiculously fun. It's such a dumb movie, but I, I think maybe just partly because of how funny it is, but also maybe just my own nostalgia that I really liked mm. the first two movies growing up. Um, but yeah, then Jurassic World came out. The trailers looked a bit meh. Mm. Uh, yet everyone seems to agree that it's it's pretty damn good. Now, I will say I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I think, like Terminator Genesis, it's riding a weird wave of nostalgia that I don't really have, and yet it still is potentially my favourite in the series, so I don't know. I'm kind, I have mixed feelings about it. I imagine if the more I think about it, the less I like it, but I, I, oh, I, I think there were, there were certain scenes I like. The climax towards the end does get to the... without giving away what the exact set piece is... It does get to the point where it, it, it is kind of like the, this is so dumb. I, I love it. It's like it's actually oh, so it great. Yeah. it's actually so stupid. You can't help but like it. But I mean, Which actually, to bring back to your last analogy again, felt like a Resident Evil movie. It just became utterly insane. And no, I, I, I would go one step further and say it was like a sci-fi channel Sharknado type movie yep. that happens yep. to have a big I'd budget. You have pterodactyls like picking people up and dropping them into other dinosaurs. <laughs> you have people running away from these pterodactyls, holding coffee, like having the presence of mind to not want to spill their coffee as they're running away, or, or whatever it was. Apparently, someone spied that on the internet as well. But like I will say. Chris Pratt, obviously very good. The man can do no wrong at the moment. The two child actors were both quite not annoying. So Surprisingly, play, yes. yeah. that's yeah. Judy Greer was wasted, which we might get to later on. Uh, completely wasted. And I know you didn't much care for Bryce Dallas Howard. I thought she was good. Judy Greer should have played that character oh, instead absolutely. of Bryce Dallas Howard. And, and, and any actress with, like, personality. I, I mean, I just, I just think it's... It'll be really funny to see, like, how many people who've seen Jurassic World could name... Bryce Dallas Howard. Not her character, even just the actor who plays her. Because just my problem with her was that she just had no presence, had no personality. She had that kind of awkward feeling, like, that I, it was the sense I got from Amy Adams in Man of Steel where they felt like it was, it was, it was a silly, it was a, where they felt like it was a silly movie. They're not quite sure what's going on. They felt out of place in it. To be fair, the script, the character isn't well written, and there, there's lots of sort of problems, like not, not even just in terms of gender politics, but just in terms of character, that, like how sort of arch they are and arch simplistic and just. So it wasn't great material. There were definitely scenes between her and Pratt where you could see that look in their eyes actors get when they know their dialogue is bad. Um, Do you think? I yeah yeah, and okay. I I think they really struggled with it, but just she. You know, another actor like Judy Greer or Emily Blunt, or I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, somebody else in that role, even with the script problems, would have just had more of a personality and an on-screen presence, and she just didn't. And I just, I, I, I think it's really odd that this movie made like half a billion in a weekend or however much it was. It's yeah. breaking all sorts of box office records. I'm sure Chris Pratt will go on to other things. The director Colin Trevorrow will most likely be hired for other things. I'm not sure Bryce Dallas Howard's gonna get much after this i just you know she's just not i mean i don't really know what she's been in before this to be honest um but i thought she was fine if, if there's one weakness in the movie it's the cgi the cgi is not great but it weirdly didn't bother me and i don't know why I can there was, there's a great cracked right? article i can recommend uh six reasons modern cgi doesn't look realistic i, I forget the author's name but if you if you look that up on the cracks.com somebody goes through a very good analysis of visual effects and mm. how all these are sort of technical and economic reasons behind why they look a certain way they do. And Jurassic World definitely had this problem. And I, I was annoyed, especially by some scenes where 
they could have gone with the approach of the original movie, which was mixing animatronics with uh, CGI and getting the balance better but there were some scenes where I was looking at and I was just thinking there's technically no reason why this couldn't have been done with one of the more realistic looking puppets but it, it's just you can tell their hand is just on something green and this CGI thing's been animated. They had that one scene with the one puppet where it died so that you could feel emotions for it. That wasn't a puppet though. No that was a puppet. Um, that was I, the I just one think there was something about this movie where I know they're commenting a lot. There's a kind of a meta commentary on the sense of wonder the first Jurassic Park evoked and how yeah. diminished that's been. Yeah. The way they're this isn't a this isn't a Jurassic Park where like it's the park's open successfully. There's all these sort of exhibits going on. There are these hologram dinosaurs. They're just walking through and they're no longer thinking like isn't isn't this amazing? It's just kind of like there. And then of course as as has to happen in these movies, you know, chaos ensues. Uh, Ah, ah, um, as Jeff Goldblum warned us in the first movie and the second movie, and they just keep making these mistakes. But it's 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 fun for us as moviegoers, and you know, like I said, there were aspects to it I liked, but it, there's definitely, uh, there were definitely problems with it, and you, you know, I'm just kind of I ca- I can't say I absolutely loved it, even if in the cinema there were certain mo- points of it where I was feeling quite giddy watching it. Well, I mean, love's a strong word. I absolutely enjoyed it, and I don't care that it was stupid because I mean, I like a lot of stupid movies, so. Yeah, Jurassic World, a sort of lazy thumbs up, I suppose. Uh, let's move on to some recent comedies. Now, I know this one is pretty much out of cinemas. I think it's still just about hanging in there. But if you haven't seen it, I couldn't recommend higher, more highly Spy. If you've seen the, if you've seen the trailers, it looked like absolute garbage. I can't stress enough how badly that trailer misrepresents the movie. It's incredibly funny. Jason Statham is laugh out loud funny. Melissa McCarthy is not playing her usual Melissa McCarthy character. She's great. Mm. Uh, Peter Serafinovich is terrifying and funny. And weirdly, Rose Byrne is probably the best thing about it. And it's like it's a lot, there's a lot of strong performances, but Rose Byrne just absolutely nails it and uh, goes through that movie. I mean, this didn't look interesting to me at all, but it's like it's it's from the same director as Bridesmaids and The Heat. And Did you see was, Bridesmaids? Yes. What do you think of it? I liked Bridesmaids, and I didn't mind it. That was too long, but yeah, it's decent. But I mean, the thing about Melissa McCarthy is, I I know she's talented and can be funny, mm-hmm. but she keeps getting these roles where the only joke is she is fat, yeah. because being fat is funny in and of itself to to a lazy. Which I will admit, obviously, Spy does do at least one or two of, but by and large, that most of the jokes, the source of them is just funny writing, good situational comedy. So it is actually clever humor in yeah. Spy then. Is, well, well, I might check it out then. Uh, okay. it, it, it's worth seeing. Um, similarly, on terms of new releases. Ant-Man came out, and I'm defining that as a comedy because it, it's trying to define itself as a comedy. Like Spy, trailers did make it look very good. I think we're all sort of suffering severe Marvel fatigue at this point. Even me, who is the most unashamed fanboy of these things, was kind of like, eh, Ant-Man, I don't care. I cared when Edgar Wright was involved. I lost a lot of interest and he left. But I've seen it twice before it's even out, and I can safely say it's pretty damn good. Was there any sense of where Wright... It ended and the other director begins. Well, that's the funny thing. There's a bit near the end together, which but... is incredibly trippy and weird. And I was convinced that that was an Edgar Wright, Joe Cornish edition, but apparently it was a Peyton Reed edition. So I, it's it's hard to see where the the lines are. So it's pretty coherent. Then oh, it's very coherent. Stuff. Yeah, and it it does the reverse Marvel of most Marvel movies start off very strong, kind of start to wane in the middle, and then get very boring at the end when it's just a massive fight of you know anonymous forces fighting our titular hero. This one. Mm-hmm. Starts off a little slow when it's trying to get into the characters, but once it gets going into the kind of the heist movie setup, it's really funny and really fun. And there's no massive army battle at the end. There's just two guys fighting in a swimming pool, and that's it. It's shocking, but you know it, it's it is very good. I, I I understand Judy Greer is in this movie. Did she get the role you know worthy of her talent and great presence and personality as a, as an actor? Well, if you read my review of Batman on for the Mount, uh, I do mention this fact because it is very weird in the last. You pointed me to an article last night about this, and they mentioned a lot of things from the last year. I'd actually extend it to two years ago because Ant Man, Judy Greer plays the mother of a plot important child and gets nothing to do. Jurassic World, Judy Greer plays the mother of a plot important child and gets nothing to do. Apparently, in Tomorrowland, and then even think back on last year's Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Judy Greer played the mother of a plot important child who has nothing to do, apart Whereas, from almost dying child. Where she used to play like the best friend of the kooky heroine in rom coms a few years ago. She then started getting more like TV roles, like she's the voice of um, Cheryl Carroll yeah, on fantastic Archer. She's Archer. She's she's a brilliant actor, and I mean, we I, I was talking about an article. I can recommend this other article uh, by a guy called Scott Meslow. 
and it's about um, M-E-S-L-O-W, and it's about Judy Greer's career and just how odd it is that everyone loves her, and rightly, she's a very talented actor in, you know, roles that allow her to get her talents across, yet in all these big budget movies, any of these bigger movies, which have been quite successful this year, she's just getting roles that are really thinly written and not good, and it sort of reflects on how this is a broader problem with, you know, having good roles for women in movies, but also just a weirdly specific thing about Judy Greer is so good. <laughs> Why isn't she getting better work? It's it's it just really very unfair. Weird. Why the hell is Bryce Dallas Howard? Anyway. <laughs> she got one movie. Judy Greer got, like, five not great ones. That's, it mm. works out. Anyway, but from two very good comedies to one not-so-good comedy, Jonathan, please regale us with the tales of woe that was Ted 2. I... I liked the first Ted movie. I think it worked, like, not just as a comedy, but the story was okay. I mean, I mean, not, the screenwriting was, like, functional. If it had some flaws, but no, none that this movie couldn't bear. And it worked. And in general, I, I like Seth MacFarlane for how he has a diversity of output. You know, he produced shows like Family Guy and American Dad. He also produced non-comedy shows like the, the remake of Cosmos. And he has a swing album. I don't know if you knew that, and it was quite good. I think I've heard bits of it. He's a bit of a renaissance man. Like, he puts his fingers in different pies, and, you know, I I kind of admire him for that. Um, Million Ways to Die in the West was his last comedy last year, and that was a big misstep, because it basically... It was more of a kind of romantic Western story that was punctuated by moments of McFarlane-esque humour that don't really land. Mm. So it made for a very awkward experience uh, watching it in the cinema... And Ted 2 is very similar, because um, Ted 2 is now about the titular teddy bear Ted. That's a lot of alliteration. Um, <laughs> having to, in order, you know, you know, having his identity called into question, because if he's not a human, the government, like, revokes his citizenship and his status as a human. I think you're doing a disservice to everyone by trying to explain the plot, because no one cares about the plot, least of all those involved You see, I, I, <laughs> that premise sounded interesting to me, because the thing, because uh, uh, my mind would go there, just thinking of the philosophy of it, it was just like, why, in the world of the movie, why weren't scientists studying how the hell a teddy bear came to life? So I thought that, that they could have gone an interesting angle with it, and the problem is they didn't. Yeah, in a different movie that wasn't meant to be a Seth MacFarlane comedy that wasn't the sequel to an already kind of middling Seth MacFarlane comedy that those questions were never going to be asked here didn't you see the trailer it has Morgan Freeman in it and Liam Neeson in it and Mark Wahlberg is covered in semen oh the hilarity there are moments in this that are like genuinely laugh out loud funny the problem is most of the movie you're sitting there and if you're in an audience just not and nobody's laughing it's just Mm. so awkward to watch and the problem is I think Seth MacFarlane, with Million Ways, he was harking back to like a certain type of old Western movie. I think MacFarlane has a certain type of nostalgia for certain pop culture things of like an earlier time, and this is evidenced in Ted 2 by the opening credit sequence, which is um, like, which already tells a lot of the problems in terms of the difference with the first Ted. In the first Ted, the opening credits is a montage of like Ted and Marky Mark Wahlberg uh, growing up and meeting Mila Kunis and all these photos and funny video clips and the song sets up the tone of the movie and and it works. Whereas in this movie, it's like a sort of standalone dance number with all these 50s sort of men and women doing ballroom dancing. And there's nothing funny about it, but Ted is just uh, jumping around dancing along with them and it's not funny. And I think from that point onwards, what happens is this movie gets like a very serious but very dull drama Yeah, that like once every five minutes... There'll be a there'll be a McFarlane joke, and some of them work, but a lot of them don't. And you know, there'll be like a musical number where Amanda Seyfried sings an entire song, and it's not funny, and it's not meant to be funny. And I think that's the problem. Is that it's 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 the problem isn't that McFarlane is still making comedies, and they're not as funny as they were. The, the problem is he's not making comedy films anymore. He's making dramas that are quite boring, and there's occasionally bits of comedy in them, and tonally. They just don't work, but they're being marketed as comedies, so people go in to see them, and it's just like people aren't getting it, and it's just because it doesn't work. I, I think McFarlane has done stronger work than this, and I would hope he'd go back to doing you know, stronger comedies. Mm. Um, okay, I think we'll move on to quickly, or maybe not quickly, uh, You're Ugly 2, which is a new Irish film that just came out recently, and I believe, yeah, you mentioned that it played in Galway at the Fla, yeah. and was quite well received, you said. <laughs> now... On this podcast, we try not to have a bias against Irish films. Uh, last last issue or episode may have swayed you thinking otherwise. 
Year Ugly 2 is fine. It is okay. Uh, <laughs> that's all there is to it. It's frustrating because there's kind of two different movies in it. Okay, better give a plot synopsis, I suppose. It's Lauren Kinsella plays Stacy and Aidan Gillen plays Will. Uh, Stacy's mother has just died and Will uh, has come to basically be like surrogate father to her because her father's also dead. He's her uncle. And he takes her from Dublin and they go to like rural, sleepy Ireland as they always must and start, you know, start a new life there and learn to love and get along and all that crap. And that's all fine. The setup is fine. It's okay. It works. The problem is I can't really tell who the film wants me to root for. Because it wants me to root for Stacy, I like it a lot. As a protagonist, she works. But the problem is it, it seems to be equally Will's movie and I don't like that character because he's this bizarre sort of anachronistic outdated Irish stereotype of kind of you know the real the real Irish rogue he's such a lad he's quite a, a character you know and I can't oh he's awful he's a terrible human being you, you, what yes how much how much of this is to do with Aidan Gillen's performance people well, have said let, he's a bit uneven in terms of his accent or his tonality <laughs> that he sometimes makes strange choices let's move on major. to that then in that case Aidan Gillen I I really want to like the man. I do. Like, back in the early thousands, The Wire, he was great in The Wire. He was great in The Wire. Um, he was good for most of that one scene he had in Dark Knight Rises, except for when he laughs into the Irish accent on the word Bane, for absolutely no reason. <laughs> he, uh, I haven't watched Love Hate, I will confess to. Apparently he's very good in that. But I think, if Game of Thrones has shown us one thing, I think he's forgotten how to do an Irish accent. And it's very distracting. The problem with it here is that he's not trying to do his real accent. He's trying to do like an inner city Dublin accent, which is fine. The problem is that I think Aidan Gillen, he has this bizarre way of acting whereby he doesn't really vanish into roles so much as wears them like heavy makeup. And it, it feels like it's trying to be, it's him trying to show how good he is at doing the accent. So it's very theatrical and overplayed and it has no chance of any kind of immersion happening around him because it, it, it's so distracting and there's one scene where he's being all sad and he's stolen his daughter uh, Stacy's uh, pills because she's on like an anti-narcolepsy medication and he goes to like a, a local youth house where they're all they're like they're dancing and playing disco music and he's trying to sell them pills and get drunk with them and it's the weirdest most awkward scene ever but I'm not sure if it's meant the problem is I don't know if it's meant to be awkward or I meant like feel sorry for him being so isolated. D- and it just, does the arc ugh. between the two characters pay off eventually? Though is there like a good development? Um, this is the second problem I have with the movie. In that now, last time when you were discussing Glasslands, you brought up a thing which I think we both hate about our cinema a lot of the time, which is that it it tries to be so minimalist that it goes nowhere. Which is why I liked the kind of movies that are coming out of Galway. That yeah. it seems like there's a good diverse output in Irish movies now, which is why I'd prefer to see. But uh, so this I, one, yeah. It, it, I was kind of glad it didn't go in a me- or not a meaningful way, but it, it sort of sets up this vaguely almost fairy tale esque logic about itself. And if it had followed that logical conclusion, it would have been a very kind of you know saccharine, lovey dovey, very convenient ending. And I'm glad it didn't do that. But by not doing that, the ending it gives us is a bit inconsequential. Like it doesn't really go anywhere. But it it feels more realistic for not going anywhere. But I don't know. I just. It's not a bad movie. It really isn't. I've seen much worse Irish films. Aidan Gillen's not great, but I will say Lauren Kinsler is fantastic. And keeping in keeping with a, an ongoing trend, I think of young Irish actresses being cast in slightly mediocre movies, but like really rising above it. Like for example, what was the actress' name that you worked with actually last year, didn't you? She was in A Thousand Times Good Night, or whatever that thing was called. Lauren Candy, Lauren Amber, yeah. Thousand Times Good Night. Yeah. She was fantastic in Thousand Times Good Night. That was the name of that movie, wasn't it? The Julia Pinoche film with the guy from Game yes. of Thrones, yeah. She was great in that. The movie was quite mediocre. Or, thinking back to Jadif, that Irish horror movie... From the Dark, Neve Algar, who Neve also Algar. worked on yeah. the uh, film-based production The Light of Day. Coming Neve Algar uh, was the best thing about that movie and completely carried it. The movie itself, okay, not great, not terrible. And again, once again with this, Lauren Kinslet, fantastic. She has a great future ahead of her. We don't need your Saoirse Ronan's. We have other people coming out. These are fine. We, 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 we'll, we'll still have Saoirse Ronan, though. We will. She's great. But the point is, a lot of great actresses seem to be emerging from the country, and this probably comes back to the point earlier about Judy Greer, is that we need better roles for women. But what I'm wondering now is that these films that these actors are emerging from, are they mediocre, or are the actresses in them just better than the film itself is? So, like, let's say they'd cast someone, a female on a par with Aidan Gillen's weirdness. Like, would it have seemed 
I mean, would I have noticed how slightly middling the whole affair was if there wasn't an actor of that caliber bringing up the rest of it, you know? Same with From the Dark, whereby, like, it was a very standard horror movie, but it was only because her performance, Neve Algar's performance, stood out so strongly that the sheer averageness of it really stuck out to me, I think. Well, like, when you're making a movie, it's you're, like, throwing ten darts at ten moving dartboards, oh, yeah. and you have to hit a bullseye <laughs> on all of them. There's so much you have to coordinate to get right in a movie. So, you know, I think when a movie gets one aspect right, it's worth commending it for that. Oh, absolutely, and it's yeah. just, like, you know... And and I mean I think in general Irish films are starting to get better and I I, I think a big a big I think a, a way forward in terms of improving the quality is if we get away from the kind of meandering sort of minimalist drama that mm. seems to go nowhere uh, and we have more diverse output in terms of genre in terms of better crafted characters and stories I mean that's just what I would prefer to see happening in Irish movies now that, there yeah. seems to be a trend happening in that now so. But yeah, so Your Ugly 2 is okay. I mean, go see it. Why not? Support the local cinema, etc., etc. But yeah, Aidan Gillen's not good. Uh, cinematography, very nice. I will say that much. Uh, cinematography, good. Lauren Kinsler, good. Aidan Gillen, bad. Aidan Gillen, very, very bad. Um, if you're listening, Aidan, I still like you. <laughs> we're sorry. Please don't kill me. Because you frighten me greatly. Um, <laughs> to go back to another comedy quickly, she's funny that way. Jonathan, you have thought, no? Yeah, um, <laughs> she's funny that way. Was uh, Peter Bogdanovich, um, f- filmmaker from years ago, but movies like Paper Moon, Last Picture Show. Um, he kind of works more as a film critic and historian now. He's known for lots of interview work he's done with John Ford, Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock. Um, you know, so he's a great sort of. He's very cinematically literate. He has mm-hmm. great knowledge of cinema and is considered something of a legend. And he's made a, a comedy called uh, She's Funny That Way. And the fact that it's marketed as a screwball comedy already kind of says a lot. throwback Woody screw- Allen-esque farce. Maybe. Yeah, because mm-hmm. screwball is kind of a term for that older kind of comedy. And I, I, tend, not, I tend to avoid Woody Allen movies on principle. But this is, <laughs> this is like a very good Woody Allen movie. Um, it's, it's about a sex worker, Izzy, played by Imogen Poots, who I, I just love because, because she's a beautiful, talented actress and her surname means farts. I just, I just find that hilarious. Um, she, but she's like, she plays this, um, call girl escort, what have you, who sleeps with Owen Wilson, uh, who is a theater director who, uh, j- just about a week later ends up, uh, casting her in a play. And it's, 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 it's all very kind of farce in its structure, uh, very good performances in it from uh, Will Fort, Jennifer Aniston, uh, Catherine Han, Risa Fans, and it's it it captures that kind of old style of comedy very well. And there there are bits of it that are genuinely funny. And I think it's just sort of from a screenwriting point of view, there will be farce elements like uh, three couples are gonna, arranging to go to the same restaurant, and they're not supposed to be at the same restaurant, and you're kind of watching, going, no, no. So I mean, yeah. it's kind of it's. Um, I I think it works. It's it's kind of a bit of a bit of fluff, you know. It's a, it's a nice, light, easygoing movie that's short enough until it, yeah. It has a very strange ending then, which is a bit meta and just a, a problem yeah, with that. Clarify, I, suppose, I, have not, I haven't of... seen the movie, but Jonathan described this to me as being a perfectly light farcical comedy that turned into a existential horror at the end, and I was so intrigued that I made him show me just the ending with no context, and I'd agree. I was quite horrified. What happens at the ending, keep in mind that throughout this story, Imogen Poots, this is character, uh, Izzy, I love her name, um, her character has been in, romantically involved with like older men in like their 40s, late 30s, what have you, and um, in the very last scene in the movie, it, it's all framing device about her being interviewed by a journalist, and uh, as, as she's telling the story of what happened in her first play, the interview ends when her new boyfriend, or described as a mentor, comes mm-hmm. in. And it's Quentin Tarantino playing himself and talking about they're about, they're going to be late for the Kung Fu B-movie triple bill or something as they head out and they're chuckling. And like, this is who she's dating now. And it's like Quentin Tarantino playing himself, who I imagine him and Bogdanovich would get on like House on Fire. But it just, there was some, I don't know if it's just I Tarant- felt dirty watching. Yeah, if it was Tarantino's personality or if it was just the sort of broader gender politics of the movie, which are by no way perfect, um... You know, you know, it's uh, yeah. It was, it was a very kind of. I, I thought it was unsettling the ending, kind of in an amusing way. Yeah. Um, so sorry for the spoiler, but uh, but in terms I think of, it was worth in it. In terms of the story, in terms of the story, you know, I didn't give too much away. But it's just that one last minute of it is a really funny note to end mm. on. Like it's funny that way. 
Yes. And on that note, good night. No, okay. Um, uh, there, there was a Slow West as well. Was Slow a West, great yes. movie. And um, just to quickly say, this was Michael Fassbender in a Western about um, Irish and Scottish people traveling across America. There is a German uh, called Werner who is cataloging the uh, genocide of the Native Americans. Who, is uh, he played at, by Werner Herzog? I wish he was, oh. but the thing was, I didn't even notice it until I, I was at the IFI screening where the director was present, and somebody asked if that was an intentional reference to Werner <laughs> Herzog, and he said yes. Oh, brilliant. And and so, I mean, this movie, like aside from like little nods like that to other filmmakers, this is very Coen Brothers in its kind of humor. It's slow west, sounds like a boring like Western movie. It It moves along so well, the story pans out in a really satisfying way there's really funny coen brothers-esque humor like like there's a shootout and some salt a jar of salt gets hit by a bullet and salt gets into someone's actual wound while they're wounded and just sort of visual puns like that all shot in new zealand standing in for sort of colorado utah Mm. wherever it is set um Really satisfying movie, and if you if you missed out on that movie, I'd recommend catching up on it. I do want to see it. I've heard the soundtrack, which is great, and I like Fastbender and what's his face, Cody Smith McPhee. That yes, that's yeah. it. Uh, so and yeah, you, and you love Werner Herzog and I parodies Herzog, of him. So. So. <laughs> I didn't know that was in there. That's interesting. Uh, I'm going to quickly just mention another new release this week called True Story, which is a Jonah Hill James Franco movie. Now, when I say that to you, do you assume it's a comedy? Yes, it's not. It's a it not is, even a little bit. No, it's based on a literal true story. It's a completely straight played thing. It Jonah. It's weird seeing Jonah Hill in a role that was clearly written for Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> if you see it, you know what I mean. Uh, it's weird seeing him not try to be funny, um, but he does it reasonably well. Franco, on the other hand, I can't really take that man seriously anymore. And even when he's trying to be like a creepy potential serial killer, he's too smarmy and smirky. And uh, but anyway, it's a sort of crime procedural. To do with Jonah Hill character plays a Jonah Hill plays a New York Times reporter who gets fired because he basically fabricated the truth in one of his articles to make it look more interesting, or whatever. And then it turns out that James Franco's character, who allegedly murdered his family, was hiding out in Mexico under the name of Jonah Hill's character. So Jonah Hill goes to meet him, and they strike up a relationship, and it's all very kind of sans lamsy for a while. And then they're writing a book about each other. No, he's writing a book about James Franco and the court, the, the court case is looming, and it's all. But did he really kill his family? Is something else afoot? Is he protecting someone else? And it's, it's not great. Uh, it's interesting in that they kind of they, they they sort of you know veer near interesting themes, such as the idea of kind of like fluid personality and them each kind of taking on bits of the other one and. What is the nature of truth and I mean, that kind of is, crap? Is, is it successful in maintaining its serious tone, or does it, oh, no, it to get unintentionally ridiculous? Like, uh, yeah. no, it does maintain its serious tone. You see, see, the thing I've heard about comic actors or directors working with actors is that if an actor can get comedy right, which is so yeah. dependent on timing and precise delivery and stuff, they tend to be like surprisingly good. It's, it's counterintuitive that you think comedy isn't serious, but once you can do comedy well, it's as if you know all these other part types of characters you can do. And, you know, we, like Steve Carell, yeah. who was Oscar oh, yeah, nominated yeah. this year, or Robin Williams was known for doing dramatic roles as well. It, it, it just seems to be like a good advice, I suppose, just if an actor can get nail comedy, you can trust them on other well, That's things. a good comparison to make to Foxcatcher. Fox I would not like. I would say it's no Foxcatcher, but then again, that movie kind of bored me. So You all it's... forgot that movie existed, didn't you? <laughs> Steve Carell is very good in it, though. So, yeah, Jonah Hill is no Steve Carell. But, like, it's not boring. It's just, I don't know, I don't get it. Like, it's... It's kind of it's aiming towards loftier ideas than it can hope to reach, and it, like it looks really nice, it's looking a nice kind of cold, crisp sort of visuals. I will say one thing that um, on the ongoing trend of female actresses wasted in movies, um, oh god, what's her name that won the Oscar? No, she didn't win it. She was nominated for Theory of Everything. Felicity Jones. Felicity Jones. She plays Jonah Hill's wife in it, or girlfriend, or something, whatever. And I, for the life of me, couldn't work out why they even had a character there, because she has literally nothing to do with the entire movie. She just basically stands in the background of scenes, looks sadly at him while he's doing his working montages of writing books, and then does nothing. But then right at the end, she has a single scene with James Franco, which is on a different level to the rest of the movie. And she's fantastic, and that one scene as a short film would be great. But again, it's, it's the problem of an actress who's too good for the film she's in, completely blasting the rest of the quality of the water. So, don't go see it, uh, unless you really want to see Jonah Hill, or James Franco, or Felicity Jones, but yeah, it's not great. It's not great. 
Um, I could mention the um, there was an Orson Welles documentary recently. Um, it's it's showing in the IFI, and it was just sort of a, a very sort of brief functional overview of his life and career, which is very interesting as a filmmaker. Yeah. It's just this is this is being programmed along with re-releases of all sorts of his movies. So so far this year, we've had Chimes at Midnight, which was his movie based on the one Shakespeare character to be in more than one Shakespeare play. Yeah. And he kind of just sort of joins up what happens in between those plays and shows bits of those plays. Uh, Falstaff was the character. And um, so Chimes of Midnight was showing, Touch of Evil is showing. Um, and at the moment, as we mentioned last time, there, there was a crowdfunding campaign going to finish editing on The Other Side of the Wind, which is a movie starring John Huston and Orson Welles' good friend and longtime collaborator Peter Bogdanovich in a movie that is about an over-the-hill director, you know, sort of trying to regain his sort of status with a new movie. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's nothing too much to read into there, but it's 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 from, from clips, you know, that are available on YouTube. It looks like it's very fastly edited, like Wells' movie F for Fake, which I definitely recommend checking out. It's a very unusual kind of movie. Um, but we could basically see that movie finished and the editing completed soon, so we'd get one more movie out of Orson Wells. But just, it's, it's worth mentioning that it is the centenary of his birth. There seems to be all sorts of commemorative events going on, or at least re-releases of his movies. Um, he's a he's a really interesting guy. Check a, uh, check out his work. I'd say if um, you haven't checked out already, Jay, look more into him. Yeah, uh, I think I'll just quickly end it now. But I will just say, uh, on the last podcast, I ended by saying Mr. Holmes was great. You've since seen it. Do you agree? I do agree. Yes, that's good. Right, moving on. <laughs> so, yeah. so just to end on a note of positivity with Irish cinema. I will say that I think it's on VOD now. Let Us Pray, starring Liam Cunningham, uh, is great. And it's an Irish film, and it's great. Uh, you see, we don't hate Irish cinema. We like some Irish cinema. This, this is another horror movie. Like, <laughs> it's a horror movie where he may or may not be Satan. Uh, oh, okay. Now I'm intrigued. <laughs> Liam Cunningham is Satan. That's fantastic. I mean, we do, we, uh, From the Dark is also on uh, Netflix now. That's um, okay. I mean, I mean, video on demand, it seems to be a platform for people for Irish movies to get out there as well. So, I mean, if there is a chance to see them now, you've, you've no yeah, more excuse definitely. about the one art house movie showing it and you didn't catch it. You know, you can check out these movies, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, on that last note of positivity uh, for Irish cinema, we will we will leave you. We will say thanks to the lads from Mong for stopping by, talking about the movie and Galway and the experience of making it. Um, hope it does well. Hope it gets to the main festivals, etc. I've been Richard Drum. And I've been Jonathan Victory. Goodbye. Scene one, Apple take two. Of course, the one thing that disappointed me most about Jurassic World was that Samuel L. Jackson didn't show up with an arm missing. Because as we saw in the original Jurassic Park, you know, he had his arm torn off by a velociraptor, but it never actually shows him dying. So I would love to think he was there the whole time working in the park over all these years, just with one arm missing. That that would have been, I, I would have loved Jurassic World unreservedly if it had done that. <laughs> it just had the balls to do that.